probably had more love than any of the others and certainly did focus on it in terms of all the writing that he did. We came down to chapter 3 of First John, so we'll pick it up there today, where he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. We are just human beings down here, and we are alive. We have minds. We are above the animals in that sense, and he gave us dominion over them. But we're still just human, very physical and subject to death. So he's exclaiming here that it's amazing that we could be called the sons of God because Christ became a son of God, and he is in all glory. Uh, his face shines like the sun in its full glory, as it says there in Revelation 1, that John also wrote. And it says that he has given us that kind of potential. He calls us sons, not that we, we are sons in terms of creation, but we're still human and physical. But he speaks of those things that are not as if they already are. And we are to become fully the sons of God, as we'll see down here as we continue on, in a way that the world simply does not understand. So he says, what kind of love is this? That we are in the position to be elevated to Godship the mystery of God be fulfilled in us. He says, Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. They would not accept the fact that Christ was God. Uh, even though he was God turned into flesh, he was still the Son of God, and the Father was his Father, and he has been restored to the same glory he had before he came down and manifested himself. So, if we are his brothers, and he is the firstborn of many brethren, then we are to be fully his brothers. That means that we are to be like him, that we are to be on the same level as him, in terms of immortality, uh, not in office, because he will always have the higher office, but we'll be the same spirit, the same being, the same essence that he is. And the world would not know him. It would not accept that he was the Son of God. Uh, he was just that little fellow from Nazareth who showed up. And they would not put him even on the level of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, or any of those Old Testament prophets to whom the Jews and the leaders of Israel in that day looked. Uh, they didn't recognize his godship. So it did not know him, and it will not know us. And when we preach the mystery of the ages, that we are to become God, the world cannot handle that. They cannot accept that, because it's, it's foreign to them. They can't grasp 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and how we'll be changed into spirit and become the very bride of Christ, which he has to have like kind. So they can't grasp that, and they will reject us 
they have various ideas of what an afterlife is, whether it's sitting on a cloud or or uh, some form of beatific vision or getting to just look at God or whatever as a lesser being, but they do not comprehend that we will be truly above the angels and be God. They didn't know him, and they won't know us. That is a strange concept to them. It is a mystery that they cannot grasp. So he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. So he already considers us sons on a lesser level, uh, not yet born into his kingdom, still in the incubation period, the gestation period, uh, having received his spirit, and now in a growth time, preparing to be born as God is God. And if the, the type is perfect, if two human parents conceive a child, it becomes a uh, a human being, fully a human being, just like they are. And when God conceives us of his spirit, when the time comes, we will be born as Christ is God and as God is God. So it doesn't appear yet what we shall appear as, he says, but we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. No one as a human being can look upon Christ in his glory and live, because his face is as bright as the sun. He and the Father will light up the temple when it comes down at the beginning of the millennium and be the light of it. There's no need for light there, because they're there. And at that point, we will see him as he is because we will be like him. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Now that's saying a lot. We need to come to comprehend that we are already pure. That once we are truly baptized, having repented of our way of thinking, our way of life, God looks upon us is pure. It says, blessed is he to whom God will not impute sin. So even though we still make mistakes, even though we still sin, we are under forgiveness from Christ's blood, and he does not impute sin in that sense to us, but he looks upon us as sons because we are not living as sinners, even though we still make mistakes. I'm hearing country music from somewhere. I hope that's not going out over the phone line. Anyway, uh, we'll continue. I, I guess there's no way you can contact me if that's a problem, because I'm using my phone line. Maybe it's just something I'm hearing. I don't know. Anyway, uh, he already considers us, in that sense, pure through the sacrifice of Christ. But we continue to purify ourselves because human nature never becomes pure on its own. This, this nature still works on us every day, every moment, to be ungodly. So even though God will put us in the category 
of looking at us as his pure children, uh, we still have to continue the purification process. Verse 4, then, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So John gets into the definition of sin. He gets into the definition of love. Now, he was very close emotionally with Christ, and God's love certainly has a great deal of emotion involved, as we've seen in the Song of Songs and other places. And that is certainly very, very important. But sin is defined as his love. And since John had so much of it, we need to listen to his definition because it is God's definition. And people have various ideas of what sin is. But here he just simply states that sin is the transgression of the law. If you break the law, then you have sinned. And yet the whole so-called Christian world believes that the law is done away with, and their idea of sin is something they themselves dream up. And each religion has different ideas of what sin is. Some say it's uh, coffee, some say it's alcohol, some say it's uh, sex, some say it's this or that or the other thing that they don't like. Some say it's cigarettes. Uh, to to one group, uh, Pepsi is of God, but coffee is sin. So, if the law of God is done away, then you have no Sabbath. They virtually, nearly all say that Sunday is a Sabbath. Some think it's Wednesday or Friday, but very few say it's on the true Sabbath. And yet that's one of the laws of God, is the seventh-day Sabbath. So, what do you do? If you break the Sabbath, you have sinned. If you keep Sunday instead of Saturday, you are sinning. You're living in sin. It's just that plain and simple. I'm still hearing that. I don't have any idea where it's coming from. Verse 5, we know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So he was manifest as a human being, that he might die and his blood be shed, because sin cannot go away without death. The wages of sin is death. So he had to die in order that our sins could go away. Otherwise, we would have to die for them. So we have God dying for us to take away the sin of all mankind ultimately because his life is worth far more than all of ours combined. And he never did sin while he was on this earth. Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Now we need to make a distinction here that... Uh, a life of sin, or a way of sin, or pursuing a sinful way of life is what he's discussing here, because everybody sins, and John himself even says, if any man says he doesn't have any sin, he's a liar, and the truth isn't in him. I think we read that last week. So we all still have sin. We all still make mistakes and transgress the law, either physically 
emotionally and spiritually. But we are not living a way of sin, a, a way of life going that direction. We're, we're struggling to go the other way. And he, that comes in verse 7. He says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And the word righteousness here is that where it says does righteousness, uh, it's 4160 in the Greek, which means continues or abides in righteousness, as opposed to continuing in and abiding in sin. That's why we put sin out, is because it still exists, but we're not living that way. So you could say in verse 8, he that practices sin, not commits sin, but practices it or lives it, and that is the sense of the Greek word number 238 here, practices. So he that practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. He was the first one to sin and continues in sin. He will not obey the rules, the laws of God. He goes against them in every way, every one of them. He starts out with uh, idolatry, worshiping himself and his own mind ahead of God, and ends with the last one, covetousness, coveting the position of God, the power of God, to be the ruler of the universe as God is. And he breaks everything in between and is trying to destroy us and kill us so that we cannot share the glory of God forevermore. So we are hated very diligently by Satan. And he says if we practice sin, then we're of the devil. So anybody that says the law is done away with, and therefore sin is done away with, is of the devil. No matter how they profess the name of Christ, the name of God, uh, you cannot be a son of God or a follower of God if you do away with the law and therefore continue in sin. It just can't be. Your righteousness is not righteousness at all. It is self-righteousness, and it's religiosity. It's not Christianity, even though the name of Christ might be used. So Satan sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, showed up as a human, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil started way back when he first had his rebellion against the throne of God, and it continued in the Garden of Eden just as soon as mankind was put on the earth. Satan recognized that he was in the image of God, and that God had a great plan that he was going to work out here with man, and Satan, of course, began to interfere with that from the very beginning. And he is still working very hard as the present evil ruler of this world to destroy us. So whoever is begotten should be begotten here all through this whole book and all the writings of John where they translated it born should be begotten. Uh, the word in the Greek is genao, G-E-N-N-A-O, which is begotten, not born. Uh, that question was answered back in uh, John 1 through 3, where Nicodemus came and wondered if he was going to have to be, go back in his mother's womb and be born again. No, uh, 
you, you don't get born again. You are simply begotten of God and then born into his kingdom at the time when we are transformed at the first resurrection. So, whosoever is begotten of God does not live in or practice sin, for his seed remains in him. The seed of the Spirit of God is there, and he cannot sin or cannot practice sin because he is begotten of God. We are God's own begettle, the ones that he has begotten to become like him. And therefore, we cannot continue and live in sin and still be called the sons of God. If you continue in sin, you're still the son of Satan. Uh, He's father you are to whom you obey. And the world, the whole world, including Israel and Christianity, is following Satan's way. First day of the week and all the other laws of God which they have denied and say are done away. So, verse 10, in this, in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. So he brings it down in the commandments here, not to just our love for God, but love of our neighbor, which is the last six of the Ten Commandments. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's the number one issue. That is the greatest thing. It's what we start out with. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. He didn't want to repent and do what God said. He wanted to get rid of his brother who was obeying God. Therefore, he was under the influence of Satan, who wanted to destroy God and then wanted to destroy all mankind. So Satan started by trying to destroy Adam and Eve and, in fact, got them to sin so that they would die physically at least. And then he caused Cain to slay his brother. He's been trying from the very beginning to destroy the whole population of the earth and is continuing that, and it will escalate here very shortly now. Verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. So God defines our righteousness by those last six commandments. He says it's it's one thing to love God, it's another thing to love your brother. And every human being on this earth has faults and weaknesses and lacks, and it's easy to focus on those and put our brother down. And hatred has various levels. It can be fairly mild, or it can be very virulent, just depending upon the emotion that goes with it and the level of it. But he says if we don't love our brother, we don't love God, and he explains that down here. Uh, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. 
So he says, love for our brethren is imperative. Without that, we're still living in sin, and we haven't passed from death to life. Whoso hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. No murderer will be in the kingdom of God, and hatred is just a an emotional manifestation of a desire to get rid of, to murder, to destroy. And we might not, in this so-called civilization, murder each other. still goes on, but not, not a great deal by comparison. But we have no problem with character assassination, destroying someone's reputation, talking about their sins, trying to brand them a sinner, as opposed to someone who has been forgiven of God and is being purified. So character assassination, gossip, backbiting, putting other people down, is a form of hatred and is a milder form of murder. But where does it cut off? Christ defined there in Matthew 5 or 6, wherever it is, that hatred has various degrees and it gets worse and worse the worse the feelings are. Uh, becomes more murderous and can even result in physical murder if it gets bad enough. So any kind of hatred or dissimulation or uh, negativity about our brothers needs to be brought into control because it is the spirit of murder. John is talking about love here, but he's pretty plain. He's pretty direct about what real love is as opposed to the false forms of love that people say is the love of God, but really isn't. It's just emotion that people in churches have. It's not the love of God based on God's commandments, but simply emotion that humans can feel for one another. And emotion is important, but he gets down to the brass tacks of defining what real love is. Verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He laid down his life for all mankind, with no exception. And he's not asking us to go that far, but he is asking us to lay down our lives for our brothers in Christ, that we give of ourselves. Uh, we serve one another. We help one another. We strengthen one another. Uh, we sharpen each other and show the kind of life of love by not dying for them, but killing the self and using our time and energy to serve and help others. That is laying down our life because our life is what? It's our time. And if we don't have time for others, then we don't love them. That's why he says to be of a ready mind, ready to help, ready to give, ready to do, is what we are called upon to do. That's how we do lay down our time or our life over time for others. You can die, but you don't die for anybody else, do you? Christ was the only one who could die for someone else and absolve their sin. 
So the only way really we can lay down our life for others is spending time praying for them, helping them physically wherever we can, spiritually if we can, and prayer comes in there. Uh, That's how we show the love of God is how we demonstrate it to the brethren. And that's why he says, if you don't forgive other humans, he will not forgive us. Because we don't have forgiveness and mercy and love in our heart for them. And therefore, uh, we don't have the love of God. Do we lay down our lives for the brethren? Do we serve them and help them? That's a key to the love of God. Verse 17, But whoso has this world's good, and sees his brother have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion, the feelings of love or tenderness or caring or sharing, from him, how dwells the love of God in him? If it's in our hand to help and we don't help, then how do we have the love of God? He says we don't. Don't have the love of God. Because that demonstrates it. And if we give with strings attached, then that's still not the love of God. That's human emotion. When we give, we should give totally and wholeheartedly and not expect anything in return. And later on, call in the debts or whatever politicians do where they do favors for people, but then they expect favors in return. God says we're not to let our left hand know what our right hand and vice versa is doing. In other words, be serving as best you can with both hands and don't keep score. There are a lot of people who give, but they keep score. You'll hear about it years later. Well, I did this and such, this is thus and such for someone. I did this this for somebody else. And I've been serving for all these years, uh, taking credit for it, bragging about it, remembering it. No, we shouldn't try to remember. We shouldn't particularly remember anything we do for anybody else. It was there. It needed done. We did it. We moved on to whatever is next. So if we have strings attached in our own minds or we have vanity or ego or pride about the spiritual service or physical service we've done for people, then that's not the attitude of God. It's it's ungodly because it's self-gratification and it's ego. And look at me, didn't I do good? Can you can, Do you understand how much good I've done? No, that doesn't build treasure in heaven. That drains your heavenly piggy bank because pride is not of God. Ego is not of God. I've seen people right out in our community that will give you something and then they'll demand something later or demand it back because they've decided they don't like you so whatever they gave you in the past ought to come back to them. Well, they didn't give it. They loaned it in that case. It it had strings attached. Now, did you give it or not? If you gave it, it isn't yours anymore. If you gave your time, it isn't yours anymore to revel in, to brag about, to talk about. It's done. It's treasure.
treasure in heaven, and it's secure there unless our own ego drains our heavenly bank account. Verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we can talk about all the things we're going to do for somebody, but you know what the road to hell's paved with, they say. Uh, those good intentions don't do a lot of good. Neither in tongue, we'll just keep talking about all the things we're going to do, but do it in deed and in truth. Truth is within the law of God. Whatever we do people for people needs to be according to God's truths and his ways so that it's truly a benefit and not just something that we do that doesn't relate to the truth of God. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If we're able to serve other people without strings and do it in deed and in truth, then we know that we are of the truth. Do we know if we're converted? Do we know if we're in the truth? Well, we need to examine our own fruits and see if there's anything there that is worth having, that's worth giving, that's worth using, and that is godly. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Uh, we can have, uh, we can dwell on the past, about our past mistakes, our past sins. Well, if we do that, are we also prone to dwell on others' past mistakes? Because it makes us feel better about ours if we can dwell on theirs. But we're not supposed to dwell on our past sins. We're supposed to move forward. That which is done is done. You cannot change it. You cannot fix it. You cannot relive it. You can only move forward and pray that the past be forgiven. And if we pray for our past to be forgiven and we accept the blood of Christ, then we need to accept the blood of Christ that other people's sins are forgiven. Do we do that? I have enemies right now that will try to bring up anything they can find from my past or anybody, anything that anybody else dreamed up about my past, whether it be true or false, because they want to condemn me and remove me. So, they're looking for sin. Well, they don't know how much I pray and ask for forgiveness of my sins and how much I ask Christ to bury them in his blood. They are just trying to pull somebody down. Well, that's hate, is what that is. Well, I don't hate him. I just want him to go away and be done and get out of here. So you see right here among us that kind of pressure that is ungodly and is unchristian. They're retaining sin. And you can't do that. And God can forgive us. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Why would our conscience condemn us? Why would our heart condemn us? Not for what we are going to do tomorrow, but for what we did yesterday. And therefore, we do not have faith in the blood of Christ that he can actually get rid of our sin, forgive it, and remove it. We must come.
come to have that kind of faith is that whatever we did in the past is done. It's buried. Well, it is if we are willing to forgive other people's sins. He says he will retain ours if we do not forgive theirs. So there's always a catch. We have to do our part, and then he will do his part. So if you're one that holds things over people's head, Christ will hold your sins over your head. He will not forgive them unless and until you forgive others. That's just the way God works. So you can you can think you're A-OK, but if you retain other people's sins, you're not A-OK. So don't condemn others, and don't condemn yourself, but accept that his blood is big enough to cover both your sin and theirs, and then move forward and purify yourself and try not to sin more. That's what our purpose is. And we can have confidence in God if we know our sins are forgiven. Verse 22, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. He gives his spirit to them that obey, Acts 5.29. And if we keep those, then we are within the will of God, and we're pleasing him, and then he will answer our prayers. And we weren't doing things pleasing in his sight, as the reason we as a church got blown apart. We need to be repenting of that, keeping his commandments better, with feeling, with emotion, with zeal, with energy, and he will forgive us, and we can move forward. And, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Emmanuel, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. So he keeps hammering this, that true righteousness is recognized by our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That if we cannot have the right kind of forgiving, loving relationship with them, then it does not exist with God. You, you can't do it both ways. You can't keep the first four commandments and break the last six, in other words. You've got to keep them all. And he that keeps his commandments dwells in him, uh, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. So he gives it, Acts 5.32 actually, is uh, where he says he gives the Spirit to those that obey. So we need to know whether it's the Spirit of the God, or whether it's the Spirit of Satan, or just human spirit and emotion, or whether it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is only there when the commandments of God are being kept. Otherwise, it does not exist. So he says then in chapter 4, believe, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Many people who will tell you that they are true prophets, that they are teaching the truth, but they're not. And he's been making it very clear here 
that if they don't teach and keep the commandments of God, then they are not of God. They're of the wrong spirit. The spirit of Antichrist is the spirit of anti-commandments, of anti-God, of everything God stands for. So there is your first test of what spirit it is, is does it observe and keep and follow the laws of God? If it doesn't do that, you can quickly dispel that religion, whatever it might be. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Emmanuel is coming in the flesh is of God. He says that he comes and dwells in us, and that Christ must be formed in us. So, via his Spirit, he is living his life through us. And we have to respond to that Spirit and respond to his commandments and keep them in order to uh, live and walk in the Spirit. And every spirit that confesses not that Emmanuel is coming in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, even even now already it is in the world. So they had back then what you call, or they called, or we call today, agnostics, or Gnosticism, who doubted that there is a God, and if you doubt there is a God then you also doubt whether his commandments are viable and true. So the spirit of lawlessness, or of licentiousness, or license to do anything you want, uh, a license in our modern terms, whether it be for fishing or hunting or driving, is a permission to do something. So licentiousness is saying, I have the right to do what I want to do. I have a license to sin because the commandments are done away with. So that spirit was there in those days. And why do you think he's been writing all this about the commandments? Uh, when he gets to chapter 4, he's explaining, he's been explaining ahead of time how you try the spirits. If they are of God, they will keep the commandments. They will recognize God. And that Christ is living his life of commandment-keeping through us. We're not living a life of sin anymore. We're living a life of commandment-keeping. He kept his Father's commandments. He never sinned, which means he never broke one of his commandments. Therefore, if he is living his life in us, we are ceasing from breaking the commandments. We are ceasing from sin, which is the breaking of the commandments. So that is how you know the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of Christ. Uh, it's, it's defined very easily. Do you keep the commandments? And even if you know them and know they should be, do you do it in deed and in truth, or do you just give it lip service? So saying the commandments of God are good uh, doesn't do any good unless you keep them. So he's explaining here that if he's not living his commandment-keeping life in you, then that's the wrong spirit. Verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than that he that is in the world. Satan is in the world. Christ is living his life in us. He always keeps the commandments. Therefore, we are required to always keep the commandments. 
When we fail, we ask for forgiveness and mercy. They are of the world, Satan's world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. They don't speak spiritual things. They don't talk about the commandments of God. And even the religions who say the commandments of God are done away are of the world. They are of Satan's world. Satan is the one that has proclaimed from the beginning that God's law doesn't matter. He's the main one. When he first rebelled against God, he says, idolatry doesn't matter. I am bigger than God. So then verse 6, we are of God. He that knows God, he hears us. He that is not of God, hears not us. Now a lot of people could quote verse 6 and say, well, if they don't hear me, they're not of God. Well, wait a minute, let's go back and understand what he's saying here. We who keep the commandments, who have the true love of God through commandment keeping, are the ones that know God. And we know that we are of God, we've tried the spirits, we're following the spirit and the law of God, and therefore, if they listen to us and they keep the commandments, they are of God. If they don't hear us, they're not of God. So anybody who picks up the Bible and says, well, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher of the truth, uh, and they don't keep the commandments, then they're not of God. <laughs> so he says, and hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So when he says, try the spirits up there, he's saying you can define it by those keeping the commandments and those who are not keeping it. It's either the truth or it's an error. Sunday keeping is an error. It's not the spirit of truth. It's not keeping the fourth commandment. Therefore, you know, it is not of God. And whoever is doing it is not of God. They would hear us who are Sabbath keepers and commandment keepers if they were of God. And if they won't listen to that, then they are not of God. So it narrows down the field a great deal as to who is speaking from God and of God and who is not. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is begotten of God and knows God. Now, you can have a bunch of Baptists loving each other, but they're not of God because they're not keeping the commandments. So we're, what we're talking about here is the love of God, which is defined by keeping the commandments. If the commandments aren't being kept, all it is is human emotion or a false love that Satan imparts as a one who is transformed into an angel of light. It's just emotion, and it is not based on true love, which is the commandments. That's the whole point he's trying to get across here. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. God keeps his commandments. This is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. For chapter 5, verse 3, I'll, go ahead, I'll skip forward and read that. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So love of God is defined here as the keeping of the commandments, all ten of them. 
And if you say they're done away, you do not have the love of God, pure and simple. I don't care what kind of emotion you express. It's not God's love. That is important that we get this. Okay, uh, verse 9. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the forgiveness for our sins so that we don't have to die. You die because you break the commandments. He that sins dies. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. He set the example. He said, Christ who loved us, who was willing to die for us, set an example for us. And how can we not love one another if he loved us that much? He, he loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were living a way of sin, a life of sin. And he sent his son to die very horribly to forgive us. I think we owe him the loving of one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and our love is perfected in us. So he says, you haven't seen God, but you've seen each other. So love each other. Hereby know that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit, which he only gives to those who obey his commands. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Therefore then, whosoever shall confess that Christ is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. Now this is all, this is not just accepting the name, this is all in the overall context here of keeping the commandments before and after what he says right there. So it's not just confessing the name, uh, it does no good to say the name unless you follow the commands. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. That is in commandment keeping. You can substitute commandment keeping for the word love. They're the same. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. That's what, that's what God's love is, is commandment keeping. So herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. That we're to live in this world like he lives, in spite of the world and in spite of ourselves, so that we can become a part of his eternal world where there is no commandment breaking, no sin. No sinner will be allowed in the kingdom of God. Read all the category of those who won't be there. And uh, that's the ones breaking the commandments. There is no fear in love, verse 18. But perfect love casts out fear. If you have perfect obedience, there's no fear in commandment keeping. It's when you break the commandments that you have fear of God. <laughs> because you know he holds the keys to life and death. So the more you obey him, the more you keep his commandments, the less fear you have. 
because fear has torment. How many of us have made mistakes in our past that might still bother us to this day because we still have a fear of God for retribution for what it is, whatever it is that we did or thought maybe. But there's where confidence in God comes is that that sin is forgiven and that we don't have to go back and berate ourselves over and over and over about something that's years ago done. He has a continual sacrifice. But if we continue to break those laws, to continue to do whatever it is that is bothering our conscience, then we still have fear and torment. So he that fears is not made perfect in love or in commandment keeping. They're the same thing. Uh, we love because he first loved us. Him is not in the Greek. We love because he first loved us. We love him, and we love our fellow man. So he says, if a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's pure and simple. He that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You can't love those around you. You can't love God. Makes that very, very plain. You cannot hate or despise, put down, character assassinate your brother, and have a love of God. Because hatred, the spirit of murder, is a breaking of the commandment. It's a breaking of the love of God. And this commandment have we from him that he who loved God love his brother also. It's a commandment. You love one, you think you love God, you have to love your brother, or it cancels out your love for God. He said that two or three times here. So that's where we are. Well, I'm going to stop there. We're almost at uh, 1 o'clock, a little early, but my voice is giving out on me. Well, no, let's, let's just go on. Let's finish this. We still got time, and it'll either last or it won't. Chapter 5. Whosoever believes that Emmanuel is the Christ is begotten of God. So we accept Christ, we accept his way, and we repent of our sins. That's what it means, repent and be baptized. So we repent of our way of thinking, our way of living, our practicing of sin, and that is believing him then you can be begotten and everyone that loves him the begat loves him also that is begotten of him so again our dependence we think we love God but if we don't love our fellow man he says nope that doesn't work that way by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments how do you know if you love people how do you know if you love your brothers and sisters in the church? By whether you keep his commandments or not. All ten. For this is the love of God again, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. What's grievous about keeping the Sabbath? What's grievous about putting God ahead of everything else? What's grievous about not killing people? <laughs> For whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 
the resurrection is victory over death in First Corinthians 15. So victory over sin and disobeying God uh, is tied to overcoming the world, which lies in sin. We don't do the ways of the world or the ways of Satan. So it is a victory then to overcome the world. And Christ told us there in, in John not to uh, that he not to fear because he had overcome the world and that he can overcome it in us as well. So who is he that overcomes the world? He that believes that Emmanuel is the Son of God. So it's more again than just accepting his name. It has to do with overcoming the world around us and its sin. Didn't he tell all seven churches? To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne and give the spiritual gifts. You won't go to a so-called Christian church and have them tell you that you've got to overcome all sin. They won't tell you that. They'll say it's done away with and all you do is accept the name of Jesus. Well, it's more than that, as he explains here. This is he that came by water and blood, even Emmanuel the Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Water represents his word. Water represents the purity and righteousness. And his blood forgives whatever sin is there. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is true. So the Spirit of God living in us will be obedient to the ways of God. Verse 7 is not in the original at all. It was added by, I think it was Erasmus, a Catholic monk, or somebody back then who tried to interject here that there is uh, uh, the Holy Spirit as a person or an individual, and that's not true. There are only two, the Father and the Son, and it is their power as manifested through their spirit, their mind, their attitude that comes to us. Anyway, he says there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. So the spirit of God begets us, and the water of the word is what washes us, and the blood is what cleanses us of, of any sins that we commit. And these three are all agreed. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. I mean, men can say nice things about you, but that doesn't mean anything unless God does. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He that believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself by the fruits of his life. You'll know them by their fruits. So the fruits of God's Spirit are the witness within you. He that believes not God has made him a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. What's the record he gave? Record of a perfectly lived life with no sin. And that's our goal and our purpose, is to live like he did. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his son. So he has offered it, he has even implanted it in us by the spirit of the gettle, so that if that spirit grow within us, we can be born into the kingdom of God, and he lives his life in us and through us by his spirit of obedience. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God does not have life. Christ isn't living his life in you. 
then there is no light because it is only that spirit life that leads to uh, transformation into spirit. Without that spirit of the ghetto there and that, ob- that obedient spirit there, God will not make you into God, which is what we're here for. These things have I written to you that believe in or on, they say believe on him, believe in him really, and everything he said is a better understanding. You that believe in the name of the Son of God, the power, the authority, the law that goes with that name, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So we have to recognize that through the imparting of his spirit into us uh, in the spirit of begettle that that is eternal life living within us and it can either be squelched or it can be promoted depending on what we do with it many have squelched it over the last three decades and departed from it and are trying to come back to it Uh, we, we all have lagged behind and we need to come to recognize that it is a living, active thing, a moment-by-moment thing, and cannot be forgotten, cannot be put on the shelf. Otherwise, the Spirit doesn't grow. And he says we have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, echoing the things that he said there in John 15 through 18. that we read at Passover time. It says then, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not to death. There is a sin to death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Uh, maybe we could use the example there to explain that of what God says in the book of Jeremiah about this nation. He says, don't even pray for it. They will not repent. Our punishment is secure. He knows that we will be stubborn, we will not accept his way, and that this thing will not happen, that they will be punished. So they are sinning unto death. Now, it's just a physical death with them at this point. But there is a sin unto spiritual death. And maybe Esau, uh, his had reached that point. We don't know that for sure because the Bible does not say that he is going to lose out on eternal life. Uh, Maybe there is opportunity for him to repent. I cannot ultimately say that, but uh, if somebody has just completely turned away from God, will not follow God, curses God, whatever, uh, does not intend to follow him, then that is a sin that will lead to death. Once you are removed from the truth of God and the way of God completely, there is no turning back. Uh, Once you put your hand to the plow, he says in Luke 9.62, you cannot turn back. Or it's like a dog to his vomit or a sow to her wallow. Uh, And there comes a point where if you're not willing to repent of sin and go forward, then you're living in your sin. And... Maybe there is no repentance of that. It is a sin unto death, and you will die unless somehow you manage to repent. But that becomes very, very difficult because Esau sought it uh, with tears and cried.
cried out, and he never could change his attitude. Uh, verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We can, we can make mistakes, we can get in an attitude, we can sin, but if we forget, or if we ask forgiveness and we repent of our sin, then it can be forgiven. We know that whosoever is begotten of God sins not or lives not a life of sin, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. So he's insulating himself against sin by getting close to God. And God says the closer you are to him, the less Satan will bother you because he can't stand to be around righteousness. So he'll go after others. Now that doesn't mean that he hasn't pursued the righteous he has in the past, and he still does. But the closer we are to God, the better chance we have of, of putting him aside and serving God instead of him. He can't touch us because we have committed ourselves to following God. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. The whole world, the whole society, the whole culture, every culture in it is of Satan, except those that are keeping the commandments of God. And you don't know very many who proclaim the commandments of God and actively seek to live them. There are very few people on earth that do that. God has called very few by comparison. And we know that the Son of God is coming and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Emmanuel the Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So he says, He gives His Spirit to those that obey. Obey what? The commandments. Those that break the commandments are sinners. Those who live by His commandments are His true believers. So he's summing it up here and saying that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the first commandment. This is, don't worship yourself. Don't worship anything else. Worship God first and foremost. Keep the first commandment. And if you keep the first one, you're going to keep the other nine because any time you break one of the other nine, you have committed idolatry. Putting yourself, your desires, your wishes ahead of God and what he says. So that is a very good parting shot. Keep yourselves from idolatry, from any kind of worship or putting anything ahead of God. That's our fleshly desires of any kind. So put him first. And if you keep, if you keep the first commandment, you'll keep all of them. So that's the book of First John for you. And it defines for us what true Christianity is, what the love of God is, and how we express it among ourselves and to ourselves indicates the degree of the love of God.